Hi there. Happy Saturday. I'm Alan Kamlick. This is the best of Fordham Conversations. On the program today, we hear a showcase of some of Fordham Conversations' best features and interviews. WFUV's Will Germain talks with military veterans about their experience going back to school. Then Mary Wilson reports on Fordham Law students who went on a fact-finding mission in Nepal. The students kept audio diaries as they investigated land access for Nepalese citizens. Later, Robin Shannon sat down with Katie Raymond. She was part of Fordham University's first study abroad program in South Africa. And Viviana Castellan interviewed kids who were trained to be reporters. But first, her report on New Yorkers who make a career out of can collecting. Carlos Mendoza Abraham lives under a tent made out of bed sheets next to a graffiti splatter wall near Manhattan's West Side Highway. Drops of sweat drip down his neck as he pushes his only companion, an old and noisy cart, down the street. This is how Carlos begins every night, collecting cans and bottles to earn a living and help his family. All of the earnings are sent to my family in Mexico, whether it's two or three hundred dollars. I want to build my house and that's it. Maybe go back. Carlos came to the United States three years ago. He tried working as a delivery man, but that wasn't enough to pay his rent and living expenses. After losing the roof over his head, he turned to scavenging. I barely made any money. I was earning between 30 and 40 dollars a week and it wasn't enough to pay for rent. I ended up going from church to church looking for food until someone said, you'll never have money if you continue going around. Get a broom, a garbage bag and start collecting cans and bottles. Collectors who work at least four hours a day can get paid up to $100 by recycling companies. But Carlos says, due to the competition, the amount of cans and bottles he finds can vary every night. Roder Fisher, who's also homeless, says he gets paid six cents per bottle and five cents per can. He says some New Yorkers may pass up this opportunity to collect five or six dollars per block, but not him. It is free money. This is this is free money. Free money that people throw away every day. They get charged in the store for a nickel on each one of these bottles they take out the store. They charge them for it. But when they get home, they go home, they drink, they soda, they put it in the trash. Because they don't look at the nickel as to be no money. Truck driver Jerry Melendez with Allstate Recycling waits on the corner of East 104th Street for collectors to sell him their cans and bottles. Okay, you got 20, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, right? Under New York State's bottle law, recycling companies received the nickel deposit plus three and a half cents more. That means a company can make eight and a half cents per bottle. Melendez says it's a win-win for both collectors and the company. Yesterday I had a customer by downtown Manhattan around 5.30 in the morning. He took, he took $600. That's him alone. That's his day. His wife collects Mondays through Fridays. Chinese lady, I've never seen somebody work so hard. She go home every day with at least two, three hundred dollars, every day. After another long night of wandering the dark city streets for hours and sifting through garbage, Carlos admits he's ready to get some sleep but can't. He says it'll take at least three more years of collecting before he'll have enough money to build his dream house in Mexico. I'm Viridiana Castellan, WFUB News. Up next, 
Will Germain sits down with three military veterans turned Fordham University students. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, my name is uh, Carlos Gonzalez, um, United States Army, retired, 12 years. Current major is a political science. Amir Vincent, I was in the Army as well. I was out of PSYOPs, Special Operations a Support Unit. Um, I was in 1st Armored Division. And um, where, where are you from? In, in I'm from Mount Vernon. I'm actually from Mount Vernon, New York, close, and my major is Computer Science. My name is Daniel Hodd. Um, I'm a finance major at Fordham, a former Marine. Starting here in 2009, uh, I suppose, honestly, on the recommendation <coughs> of one of my, you know, my commanding officer at the time, suggested Fordham, and uh, you know, thus far, it's been a great place. All right. So that was it. That was That's the whole it. question. Okay. The first question was easy. That was the first question. All right. So now I'm getting now, now that was just the conversation started. Now the real first question. If you would have described yourself, like in just, a, I don't know, a few words or a short sentence, as the person who left and then described the person who came back. Absolutely. Brainwashed? <laughs> yeah. So what was it? So, what would, so like, describe yourself first, like the person yeah. leaving, you know, young, uh, ambitious, and then, and then the, a few words for the person who came back. Wow. I was definitely young. I was eager. I was ambitious. I, ambitious. I had something to prove. I had a point to prove more or less to myself than anybody else. Like, I, when I came back, I was a little bit more hardened by like certain things in different climates of the world that kind of like opened up my eyes and through living through other people's experiences and listening to other people's stories of where they came from and how there's a lot of similarities, but because of the way we are brought up, it kind of makes you feel like, you know. I mean, I feel like everyone gains something from this experience. Does, do they, does anyone lose, lose something? Time. Yeah. What do you lose? Wow. 12 years in the service, you lose your family. You lose your wife, you lose your kids, you go through serious hardships with that because you're so dedicated and to ensure that, you know, that, that they have the best and that they always gonna always get the best. And to do that, you always have to keep working. And for some of us, this not only became a, a form of employment, but also a way of life. And then Absolutely. the military became a form of family to us. And so when you with that family, with the other family, you have they have to understand as well. And if they're not conformed to that, usually 70% of them don't, then the case is divorce. And mm -hmm. the Rampant. distance between you and your children becomes so huge is because you're stuck on deployments, you're stuck on missions. And if you come back home, then you go on training missions. And when you, go, you turn back from the training missions, you prepare to deploy again because you prepare to go for your next mission again. So it's always a constant rotation of work and exercises and rotations. So when you are home and you do get that break, it's like the family's not even there because they, their day-to-day -day activities, is, it's without you anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're just non-existent. Are you guys all totally happy that you served? Or is there any regrets whatsoever? 100%. Amir? I regret it a little bit, yeah, you, to be honest. Like, nah, because I felt like I feel like things that I could have done that I didn't do because I made that decision. But ultimately, if it's in God's hands, there's nothing I can really do about yeah, it. Not me, th right. Yeah, but I, when I made that choice, I didn't see that I may have been put a limit to other opportunities I should have taken at that time because there was another route to go. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's a regret um, I could live with, though. It's not an easy answer. It was either stay behind and continue the, the wrongdoings and the misguided life that I was living or to go somewhere and become something a lot better and provide something for my children. 
But with that being said, I didn't know that the distance between the family was going to occur. So I did what I thought was best for my family. So at the end of the day, I never will regret what I chose to do. So no, I love the decision I made, especially after coming to Fordham University and you know, going through the classes and dealing with the philosophy and dealing with theology and just becoming more enlightened. You just see to realize that the best decision was to move forward in life. I, I feel like a lot of people are not sure if it's okay to ask about, like, your possible combat experiences over there. Obviously, that's on everyone's mind when they meet veterans. I had a friend who came back from Afghanistan, and he and he's a close friend, and I didn't even feel comfortable asking yeah. him. Is it something that, you know, in general, you're willing to talk about, or would you prefer people don't ask you about it? Is it on everyone's minds? I, well, I'm not sure that it is anymore, and I'll, mm, I'll justify okay. my mm. statement. When I returned in 2003 from my Iraq deployment, war was new to this country. You know, people asked, they wanted to know, um, they wanted to understand the experience. One of the challenges I've found at Fordham, you're surrounded by people who have now been worn out by being at war for a decade, particularly peers like like students and you know people like the younger people. They grew up with these wars. You know, most of us were in Iraq when they were like eight. You know what I mean? So I, one of the things that I found here is that many people either no longer, they think they have the answers or they're kind of worn out from it or they don't, they don't have the framework and background to even know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Desensitized to it. Right. They're absolutely desensitized. And I, I don't mean that in any sense that, you know, people don't care. I'm not saying that at all. I do think that that the public sentiment, you know, with regards to how returning veterans are are treated or you know are inquired about, has changed over time. If if you guys met, um, you know, like after coming home, if you guys met another veteran and then you guys become friendly, is your combat experiences something you two would talk about? I think it's a camaraderie that you have with anybody, no matter what branch they served in, like. He was in the Marines, but I wouldn't look at him any different because I know the sacrifice he put up. I know Carlos, you know, his situation. The, the ultimate sacrifice is you had the gore to put your life on the line, even though you may it may not have been voluntarily. Nobody really wants to deploy because you don't know if you're coming back. I mean, I've lost friends. I'm pretty sure these guys have lost friends, but it's not a situation where I watch them die. I don't think the experience of people are really scared to ask you. I just think they really don't want to hear what you really may have to say because... It's they not only are they desensitized, like Dan said, that type of truth may hurt. It's not Hollywood anymore. It's real. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Alan Canley. Today we hear some of Fordham Conversations' best work. Here's Mary Wilson with audio diaries from Fordham Law students investigating land rights in Nepal. Most of Nepal's population live in rural areas. For these people, the land is their livelihood and their ticket to recognition and respect within Nepalese society. 
But a quarter of Nepal's families don't own the land they farm. Some are squatters, others are tenant farmers or sharecroppers, burdened by the debts they owe to landlords and ever vulnerable to the possibility of eviction. Over 30% of Nepal's people live in extreme poverty, and the majority of this group are landless. They are overwhelmingly indigenous peoples, or of the lower castes of Nepalese society, or are women. And last May, those eight Fordham Law students spent two weeks interviewing some of them, as well as landowners, government officials, and community organizers. The students were tasked with publishing their findings in a report to be distributed internationally. We went to Nepal to study land rights because access to land is a huge issue for the Nepali people. We had spent the semester studying the issue of land rights and how it's framed in international human rights law. And then once we went to Nepal, we wanted to talk to the people to see how the international framework could possibly work with the people we were meeting on the ground. That's Corey Calabrese, one of the students who worked on the report. She's about to explain a key part of the project documenting the land situation in Nepal, because when it comes to a human right to land, well, there isn't one, or it's not recognized in international human rights law. There's a right to food, to water, to political participation, but there's no right to land. So the goal in going on the trip to Nepal and documenting the entire experience was to determine how not owning or not having access to the land denies rights that are internationally recognized. How, for example, Nepalis are excluded from the political process because they don't own land, or how they can't secure housing because they have no way to stake a claim on a piece of land. And so we use the international conventions and different rights un- under in the international conventions to create a right to land. It's a little complicated. In addition to delving into the complicated legal stuff, the students diligently recorded their own experience of the trip and handed the audio over to WFUV. Hours of interviews, personal reflections, and the sounds of the streets and fields of Nepal. Here's one dispatch from Fordham Law student Amal Buhabib. She's giving her first impressions of Nepal's capital city, Kathmandu. We rode along windy roads, some paved and some just dirt roads. A lot of people wearing masks from all the dust. A lot of streets just lined with shop after shop, pastries and shoes, silk scarves, toys, all kinds of things. Lots of people outside one healthy-looking cow and two not-so-healthy-looking cows, two really emaciated cows. They looked so scrawny. They looked like dogs. They were eating out of a pile of trash. And three monkeys that were just kind of hanging out on the side of the road, climbing some fences, just hanging out. Amal Habib, Corey Calabrese, and the rest of the team of law students are maybe most easily referred to as the Crowley Scholars, so dubbed because their trip is sponsored by the Crowley Program for International Human Rights at Fordham Law School. When the Crowley Scholars arrived in Kathmandu, they met for the first time the men who would guide them throughout Nepal and facilitate their interviews. Uh, my name is Jagat Basnet. Uh, I work for Landless uh, Movement in Nepal. Jagat Basnet works to educate and organize landless farmers. Yeah, basically, those who don't have land, when they didn't have access to like uh, the bank loan, also the access to water, also the access to like te- uh, electricity, 
telephone lines. In 1993, Basnet founded the Community Self-Reliance Center, or the CSRC. It's based in Kathmandu, but its activists work in most of Nepal to help landless farmers claim their land rights and teach them how to organize themselves. Mostly we uh, work in field. Work in uh, the field? Yeah, field that means working with the poor peoples. We support them. And then when we'll, we'll be in office, we work for even morning to night. Sometimes we sleep in office. One important thing is we are not working as a like job holder. We are the uh, social activists and working for missions. The mission? Yeah. Jagat Basnet's colleague is Jagat Doja. I'm Jagat Doja. And I'm working with CSRC uh, as an activist. Jagat Doja travels throughout Nepal to keep up with the network of landless Nepalis. Here he's talking about how much leave he takes in a year and why he doesn't mind that it's not much. I take uh, 10 days leave in, in, in a year. So we have no any weekend here. Uh, you work all week long? Yeah, long, yeah. We, we did not take on as a burden these things. We are happy. And when, uh, if we stay at Karpandu three or four days, and we, we are unsatisfied, and then go to village, and then listen to people, and then we are happy. The next person due for an introduction is Liz Wickery, who was in charge of leading the trip to Nepal. She was the one who wrangled up most of the Crowley scholars for a recorded conversation about the entire project. Here she's explaining why she decided to collaborate with Shagat Basnet and Shagat Doja of the CSRC. One of the things that the Crowley program does to try and avoid being purely an international group that sort of parachutes in and then leaves the the local context is by finding a local trustworthy organization such as the Community Self-Reliance Center to work with. It was not easy for Liz to get Shagat Basnet's attention, although they can laugh about it now. Did you think maybe Another American lawyer is asking to come to Nepal. Um, maybe it, it, maybe there are good things, but what are some of the things you thought about when I first emailed you and asked you to partner with us? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, first, I ignore you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the second email. Uh, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it's a second or third email I, I, I response. I, I sent multiple emails. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, in, working on the issue of land rights in Nepal, uh, in talking to other organizations, I knew CSRC was the one I had to work with because they have both um, the respect of government actors but also the trust of local communities. It took a referral from a mutual acquaintance for Jagat Basnet to finally answer Liz's email. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I think third or fourth, but then I respond to her. Now I'm thinking that if I didn't, <laughs> if I did the ignore, it's, it's a really we miss uh, these groups. To hear Mary Wilson's full report on land rights in Nepal, visit wfuv.org forward slash Fordham Conversations. Now we'll hear from WFUV's Robin Shannon speak with Katie Raymond. Katie was part of Fordham University's first study abroad program in South Africa. They talk social issues and how study abroad programs can help shape a person's worldview. What are some of the struggles that are that are happening right there? The two major problems are inequality and also unemployment. That and the two actually they inform one another. How? They what happens is that 
the, the minority of the population, which is white, has control of the majority of the land and the capital and the resources also, which is remaining from the apartheid era. And what's happened is that the resources are there for people to work, but what's happening is that these systems in place are hampering their ability to do that. During apartheid, the black population was completely oppressed. Like They were the majority, but they weren't allowed to own certain businesses, weren't allowed to access certain capital. But what happened with the democracy is that those rules were abolished and that Nelson Mandela, he brought in and wanted to make a compromise between the white population and the black population so that it wasn't about oppression anymore. It was about forgiveness and understanding. But unfortunately, there are still systems in place that impede that compromise from happening, which is why it's so crucial that these systems and that these oppressions are unlocked because there are these incredible resources of people who are there and who have the ability to do these things, but for circumstances outside their control aren't able to do so. We went to um, Soweto one day, and the, during the morning we had toured the Apartheid Museum and we had seen where this, uh, another museum where they had information about students who had rioted during the Apartheid era. And I'm standing with my friend Sokana and Mashi Ping, and then we went to, uh, we actually saw a slum where people were living in the shanty town. And you look over and it's a completely developed city and then to your left is these people who can't survive or barely surviving. Now, Katie, in an earlier conversation uh, that we had prior to this interview, you said you think Fordham is on the forefront of developing what study abroad programs will look like in the future. How so? The model that Fordham is using at this program at the University of Pretoria is the best model for study abroad and should be replicated across, I think, every country, every university in the United States just because it's so focused on immersing students in the culture but using the students themselves and the network that people create with one another as a way to do that. That it's all about building relationships with people abroad and then people abroad come to the United States and building relationships. And if you want to talk about a global world, that's the way to do it. Uh, What do you hope to come away with once you've finished the study abroad program in South Africa? What I've learned as a student there has been so important and just, again, how lucky I am to be a part of it and that I've learned how microfinance is really important and that the most important thing about it is using it as a means to adapt to the certain situations that are in each particular country, that it's not about just having one model, but it's about using that model in different countries and different places and I think for me the most interesting thing is the idea that one person succeeding can influence a great deal of people and how many and real change and real growth takes time but that when it does succeed that it spreads and that also in terms of what I've learned about South Africa as a whole is that we actually had an event in Boston where the South African ambassador Abraham Rasul came and spoke about why South Africa to investors. Why would you want to invest in Africa? And I think one of the most interesting things he said was that the United States in particular, and a lot of other countries as well, has this idea in their head about what Africa is, and that whenever they give to Africa, whenever they invest, whenever they donate, they see it as a donation. They see it as charity. But that's not the case. The majority of the time, the resources that are there end up benefiting the investors. So to say that it's charity is wrong and mistaken and misconstrued because then what happens is people don't see the amount of resources that can be used there 
but just aren't because of things like the regulations in the banking system and inequality and unemployment, that once those things are solved, there is an entire growth of that continent that can be taken place. If we can shift that thinking, then the United States is also going to be able to explore all these different venues. You mean shift the thinking into we're not donating, right. we're helping to build? We're building. Mm-hmm. Because the more people who are employed and the more people who have the resources to do the things they want to do, the greater the situation is for both parties. And that this global world, this new economy, as we watch everything fall apart, that we have to look at different places and rework our own thinking in terms of growth and in what we see as power and as what we see as relationships. Katie Raymond, thank you. Thank you. We've come full circle with another report by WFUV's Vividiana Castellan. She looked at New York City student reporters working to become the next wave of broadcast journalists. At 16, Alan Francois traded his academic for an... No, uh, we got to do better than that. After a long day at school, 13-year-old Mitchell Winter is recording his script for a story on high school dropouts. Two editors here at Children's Press Line are coaching him along. I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I'm just open this suggestion. Mitchell's in eighth grade. He has curly reddish hair and is wearing a navy blue sweatsuit emblazoned with his school's emblem. Mitchell lives and attends a private school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Mitchell says he's had a passion for journalism since he was in third grade and started reading the New York Times. Journalism is like the beach. When the tide comes in, you never know what's going to wash up. That tide can wash up $25 in gold, and that $25 in gold in journalism could be a new great story. Mitchell's been working as a reporter for Children's Press Line for about a year. He's covered a wide range of issues, from homelessness to education. Mitchell says he thinks young journalists like himself offer a unique perspective on serious issues. Let's say a 30-year-old man walks, is reading like some newspaper and Children's Press Line pops up. It's nice to hear what a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old has to say about uh, dropout rates or something in New York City instead of listening to the guy, um, some guy about your age saying the same thing you probably think. It's nice to hear a different angle. Children's Press Line has offices in Lower and Northern Manhattan. The not-for-profit organization launched 10 years ago and works to integrate the voices of young people into mainstream media. Major broadcast and print media outlets air and publish their stories, including the New York Daily News and PBS NewsHour. Executive Director Elisa Bernstein says the kids who take part in the program come from all over the city and from all walks of life. But she says they have one thing in common, a love for news. The kids who really get into Children's Press Line are pretty self-selective. I mean, these are kids who, you know, in their spare time will uh, read the newspaper and, you know, trawl CNN and BBC and, and New York Times. We'll go around the benches. There's always a lot of teenagers who are sitting and skateboarding. So okay. we'll try and spot out a couple and then we'll... Alexandra Walhorn is an editorial director with Children's Press Line. She's taken about a half dozen young reporters with her to Union Square Park to get what we call in the business men-on-the-street interviews with teenagers about high school dropout rates. 
the younger kids especially are clearly intimidated to approach and ask questions to total strangers. Eight-year-old Olivia Fondi works up the nerve to start asking questions. Do you have any personal experience with people who have dropped out of school? Olivia's pretty new at this. She's only been with Children's Press Line about a month, but so far she's into it. Olivia says she enjoys diving into new issues and keeping people informed. I think that's really cool, like, for kids get to chance like to be heard about, and like that's that's cool that I get to see my name in like the newspaper or see me on like TV. Editor Alexandra Walhorn proudly points out that Children's Press Line reporters have even scooped major publications. She recalls the time they beat the New York Times to a story that uncovered a major spike in suspensions in New York City public schools. To tell you the truth, I think they were a little upset. Um, I mean, they were really happy, but then they were like, oh, of course the New York Times had to go do our story. You know, they think of it as like, this is our story, and then they see it somewhere else. Children's Pressline says many of its reporters go on to pursue careers in journalism. That's the goal of Mitchell Winter. The teen says he's proud of how far his writing has come in the past year but Nosey has more to do to sharpen his skills. I think the most challenging part is writing questions because you've really got to think. And asking the questions is the easy part. I mean, even for you, didn't you have trouble writing the questions? I mean, it's, it's hard. you got to think. And Winter will have plenty of opportunities to think. Children's Press Line Executive Director Elisa Bernstein says they'll soon be working on a series of stories about adolescent depression and youth detention centers. I'm Viridiana Castellan, WFUV News. You've just heard a showcase of WFUV's talented broadcast journalists. Much like the students in the last segment, Part of WFUV's mission is to be a training ground for the next generation of broadcast journalists. This can only be done with member support. You can become a member by calling 877-938-8907 or visit WFUV.org. I'm Alan Kanlick for Fordham Conversations.